Welcome to Amplified, the podcast channel of the International Business of Federated Hermes, where we discuss the key issues, challenges, and trends shaping the investment landscape. I'm Hans Christoph Hurt, Head of EOS at Federated Hermes, and today we are going to talk about responsible business, corporate purpose, and how this relates to ESG integration and stewardship. Joining me is uh, Alex Ed Edmonds, Professor of Finance at the London Business School and Academic Director of the Centre for Corporate Governance. Alex's research interests are in corporate finance, behavioural finance and responsible business. He has strong links to corporate and investment practices and, amongst other roles, serves on the steering group of the Purposeful Company and Royal London Asset Management's Responsible Investment Advisory Committee. Alex's new book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, was published in March 2020. I'm also joined by Michael Wies, Head of ESG Integration at the International Business of Federated Hermes. Michael advises the investment and stewardship teams on their integration approach and ensures that they have incisive ESG, sustainability and engagement information at hand to make better investment and engagement decisions for all of our clients. Alex, Michael, thank you for joining me. Alex, let's, let's start with you. We have heard a lot on purpose and stakeholders in recent months, including the statement of the Business Roundtable in the US, uh, an association of major companies, um, and they had made a big announcement in August 2019. What is your book about? How does it add to the debate? And what is Pyconomics? Uh, well, thanks, Hans, for inviting me. It's great to be on. Uh, so my book is also about the importance of stakeholders, just like the Business Roundtable statement, but it aims to achieve this in a different way. So what I view the Business Roundtable statement and other approaches to responsible business is what I call pie splitting. That's the idea that the value that a company produces is a fixed pie and a responsible business it's one that donates part of that pie to stakeholders and reduces the slice given to investors. So that might involve, say, paying higher wages or investing to reduce your carbon footprint. Now, that's absolutely important. But what I'm saying is that a responsible business goes beyond that. It's not just about not doing harm. It's about actively doing good. So that's why my book is about, it's called Grow the Pie. It's about serving society not just by donating profits, but through innovation. So this involves making products that transform customers' lives for the better, providing employees with a healthy and enriching place to work, and preserving the environment for future generations. So the idea is that we actively create value. Then ultimately, shareholders will become better off as a byproduct. And importantly, it's really critical that responsibility realizes that companies have a duty towards their investors. So just sacrificing profits to pay workers more, that will not deliver long-term returns to investors. Instead, by investing and in your workforce and treating them better and finding ways to motivate them, not only will workers become better, but they'll also be more productive and that delivers higher long-term returns. And what is the difference between the concept you are outlining in your book, Pyconomics, and enlightened shareholder values or having some regard to stakeholders with a view to enhance profits and also what's the difference to the triple bottom line uh, concept i think from the 1990s 
Yeah, so um, I'll first compare Pi economics to enlightened shareholder value. So um, there are many people who argue that shareholder value maximization is evil, at least to short termism, but that's absolutely not true, right? If you define shareholder value maximization as maximizing long term shareholder value, then any company that aims to do that will absolutely invest in their workers and treat the environment better. Otherwise, in the long term, they will be hit. But why does Pyconomics go beyond that? Was that if you're focusing on enlightened shareholder value, then you invest, but only in instrumental ways. You will only make an investment if you can foresee the benefits of it. And indeed, that's what the traditional net present value will do, is that you draw up a spreadsheet and then you calculate the costs and benefits. Now, that's possible for tangible investments, which is what the 20th century was about, where if you look at a, a, a new machine, you can calculate the number of widgets that the machine will make and how much you can sell them for. But if you're thinking about investing in people, well, there's no way that you can really calculate what is the benefit of giving my employees more flexi time? How much more motivated will they be? It's not clear. So Pyconomics is an intrinsic approach, which is we're going to invest in our people just because it's the right thing to do, and then as a byproduct, will become more profitable as a result. And the difference between, say, triple bottom line is that that's a reporting framework. So that's about, well, how do you report on how much value you create for society? And reporting is absolutely important, but we need to also recognize the limitations is reporting is typically good for things that are quantifiable. So you can report how much you're giving to workers in terms of their wages. You might even be able to report non-financial dimensions like their injury rate or the number of days off for volunteering. But how do you report something such as, are you giving them meaningful work, which allows skills development? Are you giving employees who are junior the chance to set up, to, to step up? None of that would be captured really in a TBL framework, but growing the pie would absolutely prioritize them because that creates value for your employees. Is there a link um, of, of your concept um, to the European model of having a more stakeholder-oriented um, approach? And, and related to this, could this also require different governance structures and perhaps board composition? Yeah, so actually it, it doesn't. So, so you might think, given that I advocate the importance of, of stakeholders, should um, we then have stakeholders on the board or something like that and get rid of shareholder primacy? And I don't think so. And this is, again, why my approach to responsible business differs from other views you might see out there. They will view what investors get as being at the expense of society. So the only way that we're going to improve the lot for workers is by reducing shareholder rights with these different governance structures. But because the evidence shows that treating workers well improves returns for investors in the long term, then if we have engaged investors, they will absolutely want to um, treat workers well. And if indeed you look at the evidence on, say, workers on boards um, from Germany, um, it, it's much more mixed and much more nuanced than um, people will portray. There is no clear evidence that, that I know of that this is ultimately improving long-term returns and in innovation. Thank you, Alex. And Michael, you've been a researcher you, yourself and had some uh, questions also on Alex's book. Um, please, over to you, Michael. Yes, th thank you very much, Hans. Um, Alex, I, I would like to maybe talk a little bit about um, uh, the Pyconomics world. Let let's assume we are living in the, in the Pyconomics world, and
and um, then clearly an enterprise should consider investors and several other stakeholders at the same time, as, as you point out, when making decisions. And you propose three different but interrelated principles to guide a leader's judgment when deciding how to weight the different stakeholder groups that are involved, because clearly a company or an enterprise cannot serve all stakeholders at the same time and to the same extent. You propose three principles to help leaders, namely multiplication, comparative advantage, and materiality. Uh, could you please spend some time to explain these principles and talk a little bit about how they help corporate leaders in their decision-making process? Yes, absolutely. And and just before I go into each principle, I just want to stress that it's really important to find a way of knowing what investments not to take. Often we think that a responsible business should undertake all investments, but that's just not not commercial because you're just going to run out of, of, of money. So these are, if we're indeed going to move away from net present value analysis, we need a framework for um, companies to think about how to invest. So the first principle is what I call the principle of multiplication. So we can loosely think of this as being calculating the social net present value of an investment. So if I spend one pound on a worker, do I get more than one pound of social value back rather than profit back? So why is that better? Why is it better to look at the effect, the, the social value created, is that sometimes it much, might be much e more easy to estimate the effect on social value than the effect on profit. So let's say we want to provide our employees with a gym, right? What's the effect on profit? It's that, well, maybe we're going to stop them developing diabetes in 10 years time, and therefore we're going to reduce our absenteeism. But there's no way that we can calculate that. However, we think about what's the social value of the gym to the employees. We can find that by looking at the price of, of local gyms in the area. So that's something which is much easier to measure than the impact on profit. So that's one. The second is the principle of, of comparative advantage, which is are you um, particularly skilled and resourced? Uh, do you, does your company have a comparative advantage to do this particular activity? And you might think, well, that's obvious, right? Why would a company do something that they don't have a comparative advantage in? Isn't this just one of the basic principles of strategy? And I would say it is, but it gets often forgotten when we think about responsibility. So um, there are many companies which donate a lot to charity. And indeed in India, there is a law requiring companies to give a certain proportion of their profits to charity. But I don't think this makes sense because if you're a water company, your expertise is, 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 is water, is cleaning water and providing safe water. It's not thinking about what charitable causes um, should we support? So it's much better for you to pay out your profits as dividends to investors and they can choose what charities they want to support. The final one is materiality. And what this means is are the stakeholders that you are affecting particularly material to the organization? So let's take a bank, for example. Now, the topic of the day is climate change, right? This is why Extinction Rebellion is, is, is making um, a lot of impact. And I obviously really um, highlight the importance of climate change. But if you're a bank, really climate change is not something that has a huge effect on, 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 on your business, at least not directly, compared to social capital, which I would call people's trust in your product. So you don't want to be in a payment protection insurance scandal. 
And so what this means is that as a company, you should focus your efforts on improving customer trust rather than climate change. Yes, climate change is important, but when push comes to shove and you need to prioritize one thing, I would say customer trust is even more important than climate change, even though the latter might seem to be the, the issue of the day. And you stressed in the beginning that, and this is a key pillar, I think, of your of your Pikeonomics concept in the book, um, the social value generation of, of companies. And um, here, here I'm quoting from your book because you, you argue that the Pikeonomics concept argues that an enterprise's ultimate goal is to create value for society. And by doing so, it will increase profits as a byproduct. Profits are an outcome not a goal. Um, this, this sentence really stuck with me because I believe it stands in stark contrast to the traditional value maximization theories that we may be also learning in business schools nowadays still. And to some skeptics, this, this might sound like, like a utopia. Uh, how, how can we make Pikeonomics work in practice, would you say? And, and what role do we investors have to play in that, in that concept? Thanks. I, I think there's two comments I'd like to make in this. First, is this really in stark contrast to traditional value maximization theories? And I argue it actually isn't. So many people who want to criticize business will take Milton Friedman's 1970 idea that the social responsibility of business is to maximize profits and say, well, that completely ignores society. It, it just suggests that companies should exploit as much as possible. That is absolutely not true. Friedman's argument highlighted the importance of investing in stakeholders because he said that you can only be profitable in the long term if you take stakeholders seriously so the contrast is actually not so great the only di the main difference i would see is as i mentioned earlier friedman looks at investing in stakeholders as an instrumental thing whereas i highlighted the importance of being intrinsic why because you can't calculate the profit impact of investing in your stakeholders but second, um, you talked about uh, the idea that it might sound utopia if you create value for society and magically profits will appear. Now, I would agree that that seems completely unrealistic if we think that creating value for society is just spending money. But that's not the case. So the book is really clear that creating value for society isn't just spending and donating to charity or necessarily paying your workers more or necessarily reducing every part of your carbon footprint. Right? So that's why the criteria that you just asked me about, multiplication, comparative advantage and materiality, that are three, those are three critical questions to understand what it means to create value for society. Only if those three answers are satisfied does an action create value? And that's why I'd argue it is not actually utopia or unrealistic, because only a few investments will create value for society when you apply those principles. And then to your question, what role do investors play, is absolutely just to scrutinize the investments that a company is making. Do they satisfy those principles? Or is a CEO instead doing this in order to improve her, her public image? Thank you very much, Alex. I mean, we are living living in, in, in very difficult times at the moment. And uh, with, with such a pandemic um, at the moment, how, how would you say social value generation of companies, um, but also the way they deal with the trade-offs you discussed uh, before, um, how can companies also in these times, in crisis times, create social value and, and make sure that they deliver on their corporate purpose? 
Yeah, so again, I think it's the importance of, of, of having focus and being targeted and disciplined. So we've mentioned the word purpose a few times on, on this um, podcast, but not really defined it. And, and so many people view a purposeful company as one that is altruistic. Purpose means altruistic, but it actually doesn't. Right? If you look semantically, the word purposeful means focused and targeted. For example, a purposeful meeting is a meeting with a clear goal. And if I do something on purpose, then I'm doing something deliberately. So I think what should companies do in the crisis is to understand what things to do, but also what things not to do. And so if I have a few examples, so Unilever, they stopped a number of their change initiatives that tackle complex social and environmental problems, such as water conservation and sustainable farming. Why do they stop that? Yeah, those things are nice things to do. But right now, we really need to care about the crisis. So they're donating food and sanitizer and so on. General Motors, they've stopped its car sharing program. Ford's cancelled an electric car project and uh, postponed autonomous vehicles. And Starbucks has stopped the practice of, of filling reusable cups. So all of those things are where companies have realized these are nice to have. But right now, when we're in the crisis, we need to focus our response on things that are directly related to the crisis. Great. Thank you very much. I, I think I will hand it all over to Hans again, because I think he had some follow up questions on, on corporate purpose. Thank you, Michael. Maybe we could continue speaking about how um, during normal times, let's call it that, how companies can in a meaningful way embed purpose into their operations. And then related to this, and I think you make a great proposal, um, you call it say on purpose board. I mean, how would that work for investors and how would it make a difference? Sure. So let me talk about the idea of say on purpose. So right at the moment, companies have a say on pay vote where investors give their views on the, the pay package. And um, why is that? Well, well, pay is, is important, but I'd say pay is only one dimension of a company. I think purpose is, is, is much more important. So a bad pay policy can make a company bad, but a great pay policy can't make a company great, but I think purpose can make a company great. And so what a sound purpose would involve would be for uh, investors to vote as to whether they believe that the company has been fulfilling its purpose statement. And so why is that important? We've got a lot of companies coming out there with saying great um, statements or signing the business roundtable statement and so on, but not always putting it into practice. Here, what you'll be doing is you're going to evaluate whether you actually think that the company has done so. So why is that useful? First, the vote itself will tell you something, but the vote can only be advisory, right? Because you can't stop purpose in the same way that maybe a binding say on pay vote can stop a pay package. But it's more than just the vote. The fact that in order to vote, you are requiring investors to then scrutinize whether the company has delivered on its purpose. I think that process will just spark so much more engagement between investors and companies compared to the current engagements, which might just be about hitting short-term profits. Just, just building on this one sentence uh, in your book that particularly stuck with me was the following, and I, I quote here, if companies don't recognize the value that they can create for and take from society, they lose their social license to operate, as the increasing level of populism shows they may already be doing. What, what exactly do you mean 
by that sentence and what do you think are the implications, particularly during this current crisis? Yeah, so what I mean by that is that if companies don't aren't seen to be serving wider society, then employees might walk away and customers might walk away. And I think the, the ability of customers to have an impact is much greater now than it has ever been before, given social media can lead to, to boycott spreading. For example, with Uber, there was the delete Uber campaign, and that led to half a million people cancelling their Uber accounts. Um, there was the boycott Volkswagen campaign after the um, emission scandal, and that also um, led to just people not, not buying from Volkswagen. So the idea here is that it's not just sufficient for a company to be providing a good product, like Uber was re- very convenient to use, but it needs to be seen to do things in, in, in the right way. And then what are the implications for the financial services industry is that we already have financial regulation. But there's companies can still do things which are not fully ethical, even if they are consistent with the regulation. So it's about going beyond that and making sure that our products are are truly creating value for society. So are we selling a financial product that a um, uh, that investors that consumers truly need and understand with payment protection insurance? Right. There was misleading um, advertising being given saying that, well, if you don't take out this insurance, you're not going to be entitled to the loan. Or this loan was this insurance was sold by to self-employed people who would never be able to claim on it. So it's trying to put yourself in the customer's shoes. Are these products really adding value to the customer? Would I sell these products to my friends and family? Thank you, Alex. Michael had some more research, some more research-based questions. Thank, thank you very much, Hans. Yes, yes, Alex. If it's okay, I would like to maybe move a little bit to some more specific topics uh, that you also touch upon in your book, namely engagement, stewardship, and environmental, social, and governance, these ESG factors more specifically. And what I particularly like about your book, I have to say, is that you have really this this evidence-based approach to to corporate purpose and to your Pyconomics concept. And you provide a lot of high-quality research examples in your book, which link good ESG practices, in particular social practices, on a company level with better financial outcomes. Um, but at the same time, you also asked a fair question in the book um, that while the evidence is so positive and, and it's so positive, why, why, why actually has this concept of pie economics and growing the pie not been adopted more widely in, 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 in society, but also maybe in the financial services? Why, why is that the case? And what would you say are the implications for investors here? So I think it's because we traditionally think in a pie-splitting framework, right? If we think about the games that we used to play when we were kids, right, if there's a winner, there's a loser, right? In Monopoly, the only way that I can make more money is if I take money from you if you land on my hotel or my houses. And it's important to note that the pie-splitting mentality is practiced from both ends. So on the one hand, you do have CEOs who split the pie by mistreating workers and and saving tax in order to try to increase profit. But on the other hand, you have advocates for business reform who think that the only way that you can reform business is by straightjacketing companies and restricting investor rights. And unfortunately, this them and us mentality um, is really popular. Um, It leads to extreme views where if you want to write a book saying, let's completely overthrow capitalism, 
you're going to get popular. And there have indeed been many advocates of responsible business who've written books in, in, in that spirit, trying to pursue capitalism as the enemy. We like to think about good and evil, them and us. So I think what I'm trying to put across is the evidence that actually a collaborative approach is actually going to be more successful. But I think one of the reasons why this might not seem as appealing is that any article which comes out or book which comes out saying, well, let's try and defeat the enemy is going to just get much, um, much greater acclaim. Um, so as investors, what role to play? I think it's just to, to, to look at the evidence here. And the evidence does suggest that a collaborative approach works. For example, what's the best way to reform pay to improve long term value? It's not to slash CEO pay in terms of levels even though that would win you a lot of headlines, but to tie pay more to the long term. And that's going to lead to alignment between investors and companies. And so that's the idea that we're in this together. That, that's, that's really interesting, Alex. And, and I would like to maybe spend a couple of more minutes on, on, on the research that you have done yourself, um, because you have done a lot of research on corporate governance, as we know, but also on corporate social practices. And, and I must admit, I, I remember vividly that a few years ago when you presented your seminal paper on employee well-being and stock returns at one of our internal um, seminars that, that this was also well, very well received there. And in this paper, if I may briefly summarize it, you, you find that this astonishing outperformance of companies on, the, on this famous list, 100 companies to work for in America, and you find that those firms outperform their peers by about 2.3 to 3.8% a year, then this is actually measured over 20-year age period. Let, let me play devil's advocate here a little bit and then ask you the question whether these magnitudes are actually plausible and how you make sure that we are here really looking at certain cause and effect relationships with, between these variables. Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's really important to play devil's advocate, particularly for research on ESG, because we'd like to think that companies that do well for society do better for shareholders. And so we might accept uncritically any evidence that um, suggests that. So um, how do I try to get around this causality issue? Um, so a couple of ways, uh, but I think the one way I'm going to really focus on is looking at future earnings surprises of these companies. So Every three months in the US, a company um, announces its earnings. And before they announce their earnings, you have the likes of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and other equity analysts trying to predict what those earnings will be. And so if a company does better than those earnings, then that should actually drive the stock price up. And what I found was that these companies systematically delivered earnings higher than what the market thought that they would be. And why is that important? Because you might think causality is the wrong way. Maybe it's that a company is already doing well, and that's what allows it to pay its employees more. But no, this was what I was looking at was future earnings, um, which took place um, sometime later. And the second concern you might have is, is there an omitted variable here? Maybe there's great management, and that great management both leads to companies having a high employee satisfaction and also delivering high returns. But that's also at least partially ruled out because typically when equity analysts try to forecast future earnings, they will take management quality to, into account. So instead, because they were always delivering higher earnings than what the market believed, this must be something that the market was not taking into account. And so it couldn't be the standard factors like profits or earnings or management quality.
thank you, Alex. I think this this clarification is is, is extremely helpful. Um, I would like to hand over back to Hans because I think uh, moving a little bit on from the ESG topic towards more specifically stewardship and engagement, I think you had another question on that topic. Yes, and we're almost coming to an end of this this podcast. But as a stewardship-driven investor, I just um, have to ask you another very practical question: In what 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 kind of investor can help to grow the pie? And what's in, in your view the difference between truly long-term oriented investors and merely patient investors? Great. So I think an investor that can help grow the pie is one with a large stake. Why? Because if you've got a large stake, you have a huge incentive to really get into the weeds of a company, to look beyond its short-term earnings and understand, are you actually creating social value? And if you are, is this creation of social value following the principles that I mentioned earlier or just spending in an undisciplined way? I think the last thing that you mentioned in the question is, is really important is what's the difference between patient investors and truly long-term oriented investors. So here's the, the, important, the distinction. Often people think that we want patient capital. So we want investors never to sell and then if you're not selling, you're loyal. But that doesn't make sense, right? Because it could be that an investor who never sells is just failing to monitor the company. It could well be that the company is destroying value by focusing on short-term profits, and then you're just turning a blind eye to this. So I think what's important is not whether you sell or not, and is selling always being bad, but what is the basis on which you are selling? Are you selling the company because it's not made short-term profit? That would be bad. Or are you selling the company even though it has made short-term profit because you realize that they're not investing enough for the long term? So one example is Ford. So there were two years in a row where it had record profits, yet a lot of investors sold out because they were not um, convinced by Ford failing to invest in things such as um, electric cars and self-driving cars. And so what is a long-term oriented investor it's not an investor who holds for the long term but it's an investor who uses long-term factors to drive their investment decisions sometimes that could lead you to be selling in the short term because you realize that the company is mortgaging in the future but sometimes it could indeed lead to loyalty if you realize that short-term profits are bad but that doesn't matter because they're building for the long term really interesting and so maybe the final final question i mean i hugely enjoyed reading your book but but what reception do you get generally for your book and your ideas and also critically what do you think is the likelihood that we actually seeing some real changes in how companies are run in the future thanks for asking so the book it seems that among um people serious investors and executives people have been giving a really positive reaction so um the endorsements that i got were, were really nice and what was nice is they were from people from both sides of the political spectrum so those who advocate for society and those who advocate for investors and so on uh, but but to be honest it hasn't had yet the airport book appeal of some other books on on responsible business that sort of bash capitalism because the book is not as as populist and it's sort of nuanced and it, it balances both sides so there were many people such as yourselves who will appreciate the fact that it's um, based on evidence but it won't have the same 
uh, appeal as somebody who wants to read something to show how capitalists are, are evil. So um, I really appreciate the, the chance to do this podcast to, to, to spread the word because I do think that this is a way of reforming capitalism. It's one that might get hidden just because it's not as popular as sort of other ideas of reforming capitalism. But I think it's one which hopefully should be put into practice because it's one which will benefit both investors and also society. Thank you very much, um, Alex. And uh, I also have a couple of questions now for, for Michael, who is, um, as I said, the head of the integration at the International Business of Federated and Hermes. And really just to see how, how this is related into our work. So, Michael, we've, we've heard from Alex about corporate purpose and the benefits of good ESG practices. Can you tell us a little bit about the responsibility office at the International Business of Federated Hermes? And in particular, can you explain how it ensures that ESG and engagement activities are integrated into our investment strategies and throughout the business? Thank you very much, Hans. Um, maybe in a nutshell, let me briefly explain what the responsibility office uh, does. The responsibility office at the International uh, Business at Federated Hermes is responsible for ensuring not only the investment team delivers on our mission uh, of delivering holistic returns. And in that concept, I think uh, this concept resonates really well with what Alex just described about corporate purpose. The responsibility office um, works together with the investment office, so we are not a standalone uh, entity effectively. We work really closely together with the investment office to ensure that the investment teams, but also the engagement team, integrate stewardship and ESG factors into their activities, develop and lead the implementation of our advocacy positions, and also holds each department accountable for ensuring that Hermes as a whole, as a firm, acts as a responsible business and in the interest of the clients and our beneficiaries. And it's, it's always making me quite proud to say that we integrate ESG considerations across the entire product platform. And my job effectively entails to support, but also monitor the investment and engagement teams, making sure that ESG and stewardship is really embedded in the investment and the engagement work that, that we do. And this entails, for example, having regular meetings with the investment teams and asking them challenging questions about specific holdings in, in, in the funds, but also asking them about how they really embed ESG and stewardship information in the investment process. And this, this is a, an ongoing process that really showcases in these meetings that there's a lot of buy-in from our fund, manager, uh, fund managers, and the fund managers come also very proactively up to us, to myself, and ask really challenging questions about corporate purpose, ESG, and, and stewardship. It's uh, really interesting. In your experience, you have, you have a research background, and um, Alex spoke about the relationship between ESG factors and financial outcomes. In, in, in the experience, practical experience, um, do ESG performance factors really influence and improve stock market performance? Yeah, I think that's that's the that's the holy grail question, Hans. So th thank you for asking that. And um, as I said before, I'm I'm really pleased and really like that Alex has taken such an evidence-based approach to his book because I'm also a true believer that ESG and engagement integration on the asset management side only can work really well with this evidence-based um, focus and and approach. So um, 
I, I also have seen that that um, that there are many research papers out there. Also, Alex's work on on employee satisfaction and and stock returns, uh, which show that there is a certain benefit to be achieved also on the financial outcome side if companies have proper and good ESG practices in place. And we have done uh, some research ourselves. Um, our global equities team, for example, has investigated in how far ESG performance or ESG characteristics lead to better stock market returns. And this is in particular driven by the governance and the social pillar. But we have also done some research on the credit side. And I think this is also important to mention that ESG corporate purpose stewardship is not only relevant for the equity side, but that it's also relevant for fixed income investors. And, and our research has shown that um, even if we even if we correct for all these different risk factors that could explain a company's riskiness, that we still find a certain part of the equation is still explained by ESG and that riskiness can also explain by certain ESG factors and that taking ESG factors into consideration when making investment decisions in the fixed income space is really important. So I, I, I'm a believer that, that we need to, to actually have a direct bridge between acad academic research on, on ESG, corporate finance and corporate purpose and the asset management industry in order to basically bridge this gap, which sometimes exists between academia and, and, and practice. And when we do that, I think um, both sides can benefit a lot and, and we can help also making our clients, um, or making better investment decisions for our clients in the future. Thank you. I have plenty of more questions, but I'm afraid we are out of time. And Alex and Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Hans-Christopher, head of EOS and Federated Hermes. Thank you for listening to Amplified. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.